Well, good morning. Oh, we are awake. Must be the fire ants, apparently. There's been a weird theme, and actually fire is part of my sermon, so I'm like, okay, God, we got a good one. Well, again, we want to welcome you, and we're going to continue our sermon series called Daily Reminders. Last week, we were talking about Mary and Martha. And we're talking about what is it like to create rhythms and habits so that you can sit right at the feet of Jesus. Today I want to talk about what does it actually mean to sit at the feet of Jesus? What does it mean to have this intimate relationship with God where you can draw close and he draws close to you? Well, I actually love campfires. I remember going to camp as a kid and learning to build a fire. You know, they teach you the log cabin method. Then they teach you the teepee method. But they don't teach you the gasoline method. (laughs) But we tried it. (laughs) You know, when the wood is wet, you kind of need that extra (laughs) whatever to get it going. And I've been around many campfires during the rain where it's like, oh, man, we want to get warm. We want to get this thing going. And out comes the gasoline. (laughs) A few times as a teenager, we're like, hey, be careful. Be careful. (laughs) And people have poured gasoline in and goes right up and boom. But I love the campfire. There's something about that glow that draws you in. It's intimate. It makes people feel comfortable. It might be the crackling sound. It might be just the stories that people tell as they are around. And all throughout history, we see that humans are seemingly wired to sit around a fire. You know, they cook over it. They get warm. They share life. There's just something, again, that draws people in. Today I want to talk about how our spiritual life is like gathering around a fire. You know, as we start January, one of the coldest parts of the year, it's gloomy. It's kind of cold. And we want that warmth to kind of warm us up. And our spiritual life often feels like that. It's like, oh, it's cold. I feel distant from God. And we need to warm up our spiritual life. We need to get closer to God. It's like getting close to that fire, which draws us in. And our spiritual life can ebb and flow. It kind of changes with the weather. But we need to remember that genuine intimacy with God is not simply a feeling like we talked about last week. But it's this ongoing relationship, despite how we feel, where we put in the hard work of connecting with God. Where we make it part of our daily rhythms. Opening up the word. Spending time in prayer. Communing with him, talking with him. And in our coldness, he starts to warm us up. He starts to engage us. Our heart starts to soften. We start to see who God is in our life. And it kind of changes our day when we have that as part of our routine. So the question for all of us is, when things are cold, how do we get warm? 
How do we daily engage with God and bring whatever is happening to him and sit at the feet of Jesus? Well, I think James tells us. And the first thing we want to talk about is what is intimacy with God? What does it actually mean to sit at the feet of Jesus? Let's look at James. You can turn in your Bible or on your smart device. This is what it says. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Well, what does it actually mean to draw near? Well, James is actually talking about intimacy. What is intimacy? Well, intimacy is defined as this closeness, this familiarity, this affectionate and loving relationship that we can have with one another, and then in a marriage relationship, it goes even deeper. It becomes physical. But in our relationship with God, we can have this closeness. We can have, what he's talking about, this, this familiar affection where we know God is speaking to us. We know that God is changing us. We know who he is because we're spending time in his word. That's who God is. Well, that's what he's saying here in this passage. He, he's speaking to me. I, I'm knowing him. I'm knowing what I need to change in my life because I'm becoming more and more intimate with him. And intimacy is not necessarily just spatial, right? You're not necessarily just sitting beside someone and becoming intimate. You know, Megan and I, the first part of our relationship was long distance, most of our dating was over a phone. And I was living with my grandparents at the time. And then we got the phone bill. It's like, oopsies. <laughs> but every single night, we would spend time talking with one another, getting to know one another. Yet, we weren't physically beside each other. But also, you can sit beside someone and feel so distant. You can feel like you can't connect. Even in marriage, after six or seven years, if you've grown apart, you can feel distance and still sleep in the same bed. But James says to draw near to God. He's saying we need to take this personal action towards our creator, allowing him to influence and permeate our life. It's a call to actually turn back and work on your relationship with God and each other. He's saying, actually, it takes work. It's hard. It, it's that rhythm that we need so that we don't draw away from God or our spouse. And over time, if we don't, we drift away. Pastor and teacher Mike Mazzalongo says this. Intimacy is not automatic. It does not just happen simply because you share the same house or apartment. It does not come with a marriage ceremony. Intimacy is a learned thing and cannot be contained or maintained without effort and practice. And again, just like in a marriage relationship, we need to actually put in the hard work. 
And when you first get together, you know, the sparks are flying. You're deeply in love. You want to spend every moment with that person. Oh, hey, hey. You, know, you, don't, you don't have to work that hard. But those of you that have been married for a while realize that if you don't continually put in the effort, you can grow apart. You know, kids can become the priority, unfortunately. And I've heard that over and over. After the kids leave house, you see couples separating. Why? Because they haven't put in the hard work when the kids were around. You know, that's why we need rhythms so that we can actually cultivate this loving relationship. And actually, Mike says there's two things that we need to actually cultivate. The first thing is emotional intimacy. Emotional intimacy. In other words, marital intimacy requires that our heads and hearts are close. In other words, we need to know what the other person thinks and feels. And if you don't have those honest conversations on a regular basis, you don't really know what's going on in someone's head and heart. He also says that we build this emotional intimacy by practicing this open and honest communication with one another. And I can say, honestly, it's something that I've had to learn to do with my spouse over the years. You know, about five or six years in, we're having this conflict and fight, and I realize I don't really know what she's thinking. And I'm getting to understand that she doesn't know what I'm thinking. And there's been times, it's like, no, hon, tell me what you really think. What do you really need from me? And she'll tell me, and the immature Steve didn't really listen. Yeah, no problem, hon, we'll do that. And that same conversations come up over and over again, which tells me I didn't really get it. <laughs> and over time, when I started to really listen and pay attention to what my wife needed, and I started to be vulnerable and open with her, and she started to be open and vulnerable with, vulnerable with me, we started to draw close. But I had to listen. I had to take some action. It's something that we actually need to learn and practice. It just doesn't come natural. But he also says we also need to work hard at physical intimacy. He's saying for the most part that men and women view and experience physical intimacy differently. And I, I love this insight is that women actually need to be emotionally intimate before they can be physically intimate. And men are the exact opposite. They need to be physically intimate before they can be emotionally intimate. And now you can understand where there's so much conflict in marriage about being close. How do we get close? How do we work hard at this? And most of us are just approaching this with our needs. Meet my needs first. And then the opposite, no, no, meet my needs first and you get this. But when we start to pay attention and we're open and honest and we work hard at communicating what the other person needs and you focus on the other person, 
you become close again. Emotional and physical intimacy are linked. They both have to be cultivated. Here's two books that I want to recommend to all couples. First is the book His Needs and Her Needs by Willard Harley, and the other one is Love and Respect by Dr. Emerson. I could honestly say the book His Needs and Her Needs changed our marriage. It helped us work through, hey, what do you need? What do you actually mean when you say this and that? There's little quizzes that help us determine, actually, what do we need to feel close with our spouse? But here's the point. Just like human relationships, we need to develop our relationship with God. We need to learn to practice things that draw us near to Him. And the central ingredient of intimacy is trust. God draws close to us when we trust Him. And those who are taking steps of faith, those who are in Scripture, learning to trust Him day in and day out, are learning to know Him deeply. It's all about trust. And the distance that we feel from God is often due to a disruption of trust. It's caused by our own sin or our own disappointment. But when we turn back to God and we learn to take a step of trust, okay, God, I don't feel like doing this right now, but I'm going to trust you because your word says I need to do this, I will take a step. I, I will turn towards my spouse. Even though I don't feel like it, I'm going to trust you because you told me I need to love them well. I'm going to do the hard thing. And you take a step forward. I love what D.A. Carson says. He says this. We do not drift into spiritual life. We do not drift into disciplined prayer. We will not grow in prayer unless we plan to pray. That means we must self-consciously set aside time to do nothing but pray. We don't just drift to intimacy. It's not automatic. We're not wired <laughs> to do the right thing, if you haven't noticed. It's hard work at times. But here's the thing is intimacy can be learned. It can be maintained when we put in the effort and the practice. And as we talked about last week, our hearts actually follow the habit when we put the things in place that kind of lead us in the right direction, our heart follows. Intimacy grows. It's kind of like, okay, hon, we'll put in the date night. We'll put it in the calendar so we make sure that we don't miss it. You know, I'll put prayer at this point in the morning, even though it's, it's hard. And we'll get to what do we pray you know, I'll, I'll put this reading scripture at the end of the day or at the beginning of the day so I don't miss it. We put it as part of our routine because our intimacy just doesn't come naturally. It takes work. So how do we actually develop a pattern of intimacy? 
How do we develop a pattern of intimacy? I'm going to jump to Philippians 1.9. This is what it says. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. With knowledge and all discernment. So what is Paul saying when he says knowledge? What does that word mean? It actually means that we need to develop this full knowledge of who God is. It's not just head knowledge. It's actually heart knowledge too. It's this deep knowledge that transforms us. As we get to know God more and more, you're like, oh, I don't want to do that anymore. I, I, I want to know God on a deeper, deeper level, level. And when our thinking is off, our actions are off. They're connected. In other words, there's a connection between knowing the things of God and growing in our love and intimacy with him. And Paul is saying, hey, my prayer for you is that your love may abound, that it may be more and more, that it grows, that it bubbles over as you spend time with him. As you grow in knowledge of who he is, it transforms you and your love abounds. You learn what it means to be in Christ, to abide in him, to be deeply connected so that no matter what is happening in your life, you're like, ah, I know who God is. I know what it's like to be in a deep relationship with him. That doesn't matter anymore. But I know God. And the more time we spend in the word of God and in prayer, the more we start to actually discern what is from God and what isn't. And this is how we actually start to think like him. This is how we begin to understand the heart and mind of who Jesus is. This is how we learn to discern in life what we should do and shouldn't do. And as Philippians says, we learn whatever is true. Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on such things. You know, there's this term, what we call theology, that we need to grow in our theology. Theology is simply this. We are learning who God is. It's understanding God. And it's actually connected to what we call our doxology. Doxology is our praise. And when we have right theology, when we understand who God is, we can't help but praise him. We can't help but give our time and our resources. We can't help but talk about him. So as we grow in our understanding of who God is, it actually permeates and affects everything in our life. So if we have trouble praising God, it's linked to our theology. It's because we don't truly understand who he is. We know things about God, but we don't know God. For example, 
you know, birthdays come around once a year. And there's the dreaded, oh, what do I get that person? <laughs> but you don't have trouble buying a gift for someone that you know well, do you? It's the people that you don't know well that you're like, oh, I don't know. I have no clue. But to actually, for, for me as a husband, to please my wife, I actually have to understand what she wills and wants. And all the husbands are going, uh-huh. But as we pray, God wants our minds to be filled with his God-exalting truth so we know what he wants. It guides our prayer. It guides our decision. It's moving beyond just basic requests. Hey, God, can you fix this in my life? Can you provide for me? Can you do this for me, for me, for me, for me? See the problem? And unfortunately, when we pray with just our needs in mind, we miss the knowledge and the depth and the insight and the discernment that comes from God's word. So the question for all of us is, how should we pray? You know, the disciples asked the same question. This is what Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, 9 to 13. It says, this then is how you should pray. You can say it with me if you want. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For, it, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins... Your Father will not forgive your sins. So how do we pray? He tells us. There's this acronym that we can also create with the word prayer. Notice that Jesus starts with praise. If you could put up the next slide. That when we pray, when we approach God, when we start with praise, we're praising him for his attributes and actions. We're praising him for who he is and what he has done. Then we move to repentance. And as we're praying, we're asking God to search our hearts. We're reviewing our actions of the day. We're letting the Spirit identify any sins that we've committed, we're confessing them. We're expressing our sorrow for them. We're turning away from them and we're claiming God's forgiveness. Next slide. And then we're asking God for the requests. And as Philippians 4, 6 says, in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And then we're yielding and submitting and surrendering ourselves to him. 
recognizing that he is in control, and we're basking in his presence. This is how Jesus says we should pray. So the question for all of us is, are we going through this pattern? Are we learning to worship? Are we learning to talk to God in such a way it's not all about us? <laughs> that we're learning his knowledge of who he is and what he says we should do. Are we discerning our next steps? Are we discerning how we should work through our conflict with our spouse, with our coworkers, with our neighbors? Are we using the knowledge of God and then it move, moves from our head to our heart in every circumstance? Another pastor said it this way, worship works like a coat. When you put on a coat and it's cold outside, it's raining, it's snowing, does the coat change the weather of the day? No, it doesn't change the weather. It doesn't change anything at all. But it changes you in the weather. Worship and prayer is how you clothe yourself in a discouraging world. Worship is how you change your focus and put him back on the throne of your life and learn to follow him in every single circumstance. And as you elevate Jesus, as you put on that coat, as you pray and worship him, it's like putting on that jacket. And in the very same conditions and circumstances that were crushing you yesterday becomes something that you can thrive in today. Are we putting on our worship? Every single day, are we putting on prayer? As we navigate even the hardest things in our life, are we just approaching it with our wisdom? <laughs> Are we walking in going, okay, God, guide me, lead me, prepare my heart? I guarantee you, your life will change. Lastly, how do we remove the things that keep us from intimacy? How do we remove the things that keep us from in intimacy? Let's go back to James, James 4.8. It says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What is James saying? He's saying instead of running to friendship and intimacy with the world, run to him. He's saying the kind of friendship is not birthed from our flesh, but it's birthed from our spirit. In other words, our spirit needs to connect with spirit. How do we do this? He says, clean your hands, you sinners. Purify your, your hearts. What does it mean to clean our hands? Well, James is saying that we get our hands dirty when we play in the world's sandbox. In other words, sin leaves a stain. It leaves a mark. It affects every single aspect of our life. 
and how we relate to God and others. And he's saying that we cleanse our hands by washing ourselves in the forgiveness and grace of God. And when we have a rhythm of coming to God to clean our hands and clean our heart, we draw close to him. But when we have a rhythm that's chasing the world or that next shiny thing or stature or achievement, being loved by the world and everyone else, you're playing in the world's sandbox. And James is saying, stop your sinful pursuits and compromises by confessing to God your sin and seeking him on a regular basis. And as Paul says in Romans, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice every single day. And part of that is cleaning your hands. So what gets in the way of us washing our hands and regularly asking forgiveness, basking in God's presence and his grace? Tim Keller gives this great illustration. He says when he was growing up, his mom would always tell him, don't eat the junk food before we get to the meal. But he was hungry. And the cookie jar was there. (laughs) And it was always calling him. And every single time he would go to the cookie jar and eat a cookie, it tasted good. It was sweet. He enjoyed it for that moment. But then he would sit down to the, the amazing meal that his mom prepared, and he had lost his appetite. And he had no room for the meal that he actually needed to eat. This is what he says. Sin ruins your appetite. There are a lot of things that you and I do. And actually says three areas. With sex and power and money, those are God substitutes. They are adoration substitutes. They are experience substitutes. They give you a high in the moment just like the cookie. But they actually ruin your appetite. And for some of you, the reason that you're not hungry for God is because you're ruining your appetite with sin. You're doing things in a certain sense. You're giving in to a high that's temporary. But if you would obey him, If you would clear up your conscience, you would find yourself saying, I need God. You would have this appetite for God rather than running to those substitutes. So if you want to develop your appetite for God, remove those substitutes. Get rid of all the things that you know are getting in the way of that intimate relationship with God, the relationship that you need, the relationship that I believe you want, 
So how do we do this? It's through repentance. Someone said it like this. As we're daily reading God's word, as we're praying, I'm changing my mind. I'm going, wow, I was so wrong. The way that I talk is wrong. The way that I think is wrong. The way that I act is wrong. My behavior, my addictions, my appetites, whatever it is, fill in the blank. As I'm reading and praying on a daily basis, I'm repenting. I'm recognizing that I was wrong. And I'm regenerating. I'm being renewed. I'm growing. And every time my mind changes, that is repentance. I'm going to say that again. Every time our mind changes, that is repentance. And this is why James calls us double-minded. When we live two lives... Isaiah 29, 13 says this, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And James is saying that we've actually been given two lives, but one life has to die before the other life can live. Our sinful appetite needs to die before we can have an intimate relationship with God. We need to put things to death. You know, I can preach this. I can talk about it. But I think this is why God allows suffering in our lives is because we hold on to that second life so tightly. We don't want to let it go. And God allows things in our life where we, he forces you to let go. I just read this week, this is exactly what has happened to Tim Keller. That he's been diagnosed with cancer But this is what he says as he's working through some really hard things. He said, despite the pain and the fear associated with his cancer, he and his wife, Kathy, would never want to go back to the kind of prayer life that they had before. They would never want to go back to the spiritual life that they had before cancer. Why? Because that life is dead. And he said he spent all of his life saying, we need to have communion with God. You, we need to experience the presence of God on a regular basis. He's saying that, you know, God will satisfy us, yet he wasn't being satisfied until now. Why? Because he realized he didn't really believe that he was going to die. And at some deep level, he just didn't. He looked back on it. I don't think there's a way through, you know, the change that has happened to me until I really did realize I need to count my days. 
There's an end in sight. And I'm going to be with Jesus. I've preached about it. I've talked about it. And now finally, I'm experiencing it. Why? Because one life had to die. But here's the good news is that God gives us this open invitation to draw close to him. Every day, we can experience God. Every day, we can have this intimate, close relationship with him. And this is why James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And the question for all of us, is this your relationship with God cold? Or is it hot? Is it cold? Or is it hot? And just like the campfire, when we come close to God, when we repent, when we give up that other life, man, we can experience this amazing intimacy, this amazing connection that will transform your life. I'm going to call the worship team up. Again, Mike says this, intimacy is not automatic. Intimacy is a learned thing and cannot be contained or maintained without effort or practice. And the question for all of us is, is what is the one thing that we need to do to develop a pattern of intimacy? What is one step that you can take today let me pray for you. God, thank you that you do have an open invitation. That you've provided a way through Christ that we can come as we are with our sin, with our dirty hands, and that you can wash us clean. That when we spend time in your word and, and in prayer, that you can change our mind about the way that we're living our life that your spirit speaks to us and corrects us, that there's so much grace for us, that there's so much love for us. Thank you, Jesus. But God, I pray today that we would take a step towards you, that we would be a congregation that has this closeness, that we're constantly, daily trying to get near you, that you are changing our thinking. And because we are changed, that we would be on mission with you. God, help us to remember that life is short. to take a step today if we need to. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Let's stand together.